welcome to the Stay Loyal Podcast, where we seek to find objective truths about specific topics with experts in those fields. In this episode, I will be talking to Benjamin Weatherston, the pastor of the Grand Rapids Church of Christ. Ben has a beautiful wife and two boys. He has also been a photography and media business owner and a freelancer before he was called into ministry. He has been the pastor of the Grand Rapids Church of Christ for over two years and has been a great help to the congregation and the Grand Rapids community. I admire his consistency and desire to bring peace in a world full of conflict. Enjoy the show. Thank you. Um, like I just want to know what, what was it like to be a... Because I know you were a PK, right? Yeah. So what was that like? Um, it was interesting mm-hmm. and great uh, in some ways. And then, you know, I had like a, a bunch of influences in my childhood and... My dad being a minister was one of them, mm-hmm. but not necessarily the like the most formative. And what I mean by that is, like, yeah, my dad was a minister, and that was was good. I liked I liked my dad being in ministry, even when it was some weird stuff. And you know what? I gotta like I gotta like sit down with him and go over the history because yeah. some of the t- stuff I remember, and I'm like. Was that, was that real? Like, was that accurate, or was that my childhood memory? Because I've totally found some things that I remembered that aren't true. Like what? Well, just perceptions. Huh. So, like, I remember having, it was like a family wedding years ago, and we got all my cousins together, mm-hmm. and I remember having a very different perception of me and them and our relationship. And so I would ask them, like do you remember me in this way? And they would be like, no, not at all. Like, I think you made that up. (laughs) But either way, when it comes to my dad being a minister, like I remember strange things about, um, we lived in, in one place we lived, we lived in a parsonage, which is a house that the church owns. Mm. And me and my two brothers, we treated that place like garbage. I don't know why we were the we were the worst kids but we broke stuff all the time yeah like we broke the floor and we broke out the windows and we like lit some stuff on fire and crazy stuff and I'm thinking now I'm thinking as as an adult with yeah. teenage boys I'm like wait if my kids did that to to the house that we lived in oh my gosh so I, I, I sometimes I want to go back and be like what was the stress of working for a church when your kids were wild Mm -hmm. like did we make your life like really hard as a minister and I remember uh, he wasn't working full-time for a church when I got arrested Mm -hmm. but I got arrested for shoplifting as a kid and uh, freshman in high school so like 14 15 I think Mm You can get arrested if you're like a minor. You still get arrested, right? Yeah. Or do you like just detain you type of? Does it go on your record? Well, it depends, and we had to work some stuff out with the law enforcement. Um, so it ended up not going on my record, which mm. was, uh, you know, that's nice. I'm grateful for, but um, but yeah, but my dad, you know, he ended up preaching like that Sunday. Like he preached every Sunday at the mm. church we were going to. And I just remember, like, man, what, what must that have been like as a minister yeah. <laughs> to have to tell people that your kid got, you know, arrested for stealing stuff. So either way, so the being a minister's kid 
has interesting challenges and pressures, which you know, because yeah. you that's how you grew up. Mm -hmm. The other force that really was weird act, that acted on me as a kid was the fact that we moved all the time, mm -hmm. like almost once a year. Yep. And, and you guys moved a lot? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so... We didn't I, move internationally, but we just moved around in the States. Yeah, us too, yeah. yeah. We just moved from place to place. And so, like, I had three different high schools and a bunch of different elementary schools. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think trying to f separate those two things, like what part of my character was formed by which thing. And so like for instance, like I was, you know, I was sneaky mm -hmm. as a kid and rebellious and how much of that was because of my dad being in ministry and then how much of that was because we moved a lot. Mm -hmm. Or my, I, I had a hard time making friends with people. Mm. And so how much of that is not because I was a minister's kid, but because we were moving all the time. Mm. There was also like a weird, um, and the, and I don't, I don't blame this on my parents. I think they did, they did the best they, they could. And we've had lots of talks since. It's actually funny, since um, we, we moved and started doing virtual church and mm -hmm. my parents were watching church online, they kind of like virtually joined our church during lockdown, mm -hmm. but they there was a, you know, they called and they were like, hey, are we okay? Because you're like pretty open <laughs> about, you're pretty open about like your childhood and did, were, were we good parents? <laughs> No, oh, I did that. They asked you that. Oh yeah, my mom. She was like, "Are you okay?" And I was like, "Mom, I love you. You're awesome." Yeah. Um. But I think, like, there was a a weird sort of. Uh, it's gonna sound really bad, but there's like a weird sort of contempt that I developed in when I viewed my family, mm -hmm. like the five of us, like we were better than everyone else like if you were below if you were below us like you were we, we i saw you as dumb or i saw you as uncultured or i saw you as whatever but if you were above us i saw you as like like yuppie snooty privileged elitist like i had a i had a way of looking down on everybody is this like in the church community no no this is just in general in general Cause like, man, the Weatherstons, the us five, like we were, we were awesome yeah. and everybody else was not awesome. And, and I don't know where that came from, but I, I definitely don't think it came from my dad being a minister and I don't think it came from moving a lot, but it did come from kind of just like, it was just us. And so there was a lot of different forces that I think acted on me. Um, we were also very poor. Uh, you, you know, and, and you grew up in yeah, India yeah. where like, and I go pretty hard on Americans like, yeah. hey, even the poorest people here are pretty, pretty yeah. okay. Um, but like, yeah, there was, there was times where, you know, we just, we like, we had hand-me-downs from hand-me-downs, like yeah. the clothes, like we didn't have anything new and... 
my we were living in a like a at one point the f the five of us were staying in like a two bedroom tiny apartment because my dad was in school i was in cincinnati and um you know and then we got this place that was owned by a, one of the churches that my dad worked for and it was like a blessing i look at that now i'm like oh my gosh we had a house for like something like 250 dollars a month nice like that's amazing yeah. And yet we abused it and we 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 didn't take it. Oh, tell us the story about uh, you doing the um, you sprayed something on the wall. Oh my gosh, <laughs> we I sprayed hairspray on the wall and then lit it on fire. Yeah, yeah. And it like singed my name into the paint. Uh -huh. It didn't like it wasn't black, but it was yeah. like a different Gloss, sheen. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like a satin finish kitchen wall and then a high gloss Ben nice. written into it. And sure enough, my mom comes home and she's like, what in the world? Yeah. And I'm like, I think it was Luke. <laughs> and then she's like, why would Luke write Ben on the wall and light it on fire? I'm like, to frame me, obviously. <laughs> I, would, I would never be so dumb as to write my own name on the wall. But I did. But yeah, we just, um, yeah, I remember it, it, there was this tiny little town in Cincinnati called Lockland, Ohio. And it's super tiny, but it was like, um, we lived right in front of a junkyard, which was right in front of these train tracks. Mm -hmm. And this is where like, uh, Stearns and Foster mattress company is and GM has a plant there. And it was like this tiny little postage stamp of a town that's fully like urban. And now, gosh, if you go through there, it's like the crime crossroads of Southern Ohio. It's so weird. I'd talk to people like, you lived in Lockland? Did you get out? I'm like, yeah, yeah we left. But it's just weird growing up in this like dirty little town, like running through the junkyard barefoot, picking nails out of our feet. <laughs> <laughs> and we never were like, oh, I need to go to the hospital. I got hit by a car one time. Nice. Yeah. And my the guy like threw me in the back of an ambulance. Um, and my my mom meets me at the hospital and she's like, what did you do? I'm like, I was just driving, riding my bike in the street. Yeah. Just crazy, crazy, weird childhood. Were you like injured? No, I was fine. Just like banged up. Yeah, just like, I was more, I wanted to run away, but the guy grabbed me. And yeah. he, it turns out he was like a firefighter or something. Yeah, so he was yeah. like, I'm not letting you get away. You're going to go to the hospital and get checked out. Either way, we had just a weird, and, and that was like the urban side of my childhood. But then like, we grew up on a farm in Kansas. We lived in, um, that was in White City, Kansas. We lived in Manhattan, Kansas, which is a college town. Mm -hmm. But uh, we lived like in this like crazy basement apartment, which again, I wanna like talk to my parents and find out how much of what I remember is actually true. Mm -hmm. But it was like this gr grimy, dungeon of a basement apartment that we lived in while we were there and then we lived with um we lived with my grandfather and grandmother for a while when she wasn't doing very well and uh, we stayed there she passed away and then we moved on so we moved a lot just like but not for one reason like not military not ministry hmm. not it was like sometimes a job, sometimes school, sometimes family emergency. So we just moved a lot. And so I think all of those factors contributed to my 
character development. And one of those factors is that my dad was in ministry. Yeah. And my parents, you know, they worked together. Um, but uh, but I, I, I look back now and, and I don't know, like, how much is directly attributable to being a, a preacher's kid. And, and so some of it I'm super grateful for. Like, 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 I feel like I was, I was taught about the person of God at a young age, and I, I was given a foundation of faith and belief, and, uh, and I was still, like, sneaky and rebellious, but... Um, even when I like questioned what do I believe, um, even in my darkest times, I, I, get, I still kind of came back to like, well, God, I know God is real. Mm. Even when there were times where I didn't want him to be real, <laughs> like I wanted him to leave me alone and, and not, and like, I don't want to be, I don't want to have any consequences for my my actions, I still, I still came back to like, well, you know, that's not true. Mm. So I was grateful for the foundation of faith. And my dad, he taught me, he's a very analytical guy and very, he saw things kind of in a different, from a different perspective. And so he taught me certain things that I uh, have remembered my whole life. Mm. And I'm like, really grateful for. And now as a minister, I see myself like, you know, using some of that perspective. Yeah, that was the question I was going to ask you. Is like, how do you view your dad? How, like, do I do I like him? I mean, obviously, probably now you do, but <laughs> yeah, he's he's a great guy. But I'm just talking about when you when he was a pastor and um, like, how did you view him? Did you see any kind of personality differences when he was a pastor and he was at home? Anything like that? Yeah, that's a great question, um, and it's something that I have even like wrestled with in my own discipleship and in, in my own like view of myself as a minister mm. is um, one of the things I remember and we haven't we haven't really like had it out um, and I, I don't it doesn't bother me but when I think back as a kid I remember thinking that my dad um, like the job of ministry, especially at this one church, because it's kind of like the, the one place we lived the longest. So it's the, the, the one place I got to see him the most as a minister. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if it was a super uh, healthy work environment. And so, what is that? so like, I think sometimes people, people, they hear about... Um, I got you the, uh, dude, can I have a beer? Yeah. Oh, dude, I love it. It's not creative at all. I was no. like, Alex is like, she has a whole fridge of that. Why are you going to get him? I was like, the, he ordered that at beat up. The I, old he, standby. <laughs> dude, I love this beer. I'm going to open it away from the mic. Um, wow, right? <laughs> it's loud. Cheers. Um, so, okay. So a lot of ministers, kids and, and people, kids that grow up in church, I don't think they they separate the 
especially ministers' kids. We'll just go with that. Yeah. I don't. There's like so many layers to every person, and the the faith, the spiritual component, is different than their professional career component. Let's explain that a little bit. Here. Yeah. So, take someone who's not in ministry. Sure. Like someone who is in, it works at a machine shop and they make widgets and then they go to church and they're a great Christian and they love people, they serve, they, they work hard as a child of God mm-hmm. taking care of their own personal faith, their family, their faith community and uh, non-Christians. And yet they are not that's not how they make money. True, yeah. Okay? It's have a different application. Yeah. Yeah. And so they, they go to work, and if they're really strong in their faith, they are a disciple of Jesus on the job. True. Okay? But when they come to church, it's not the same. Like, they don't, they're not a, a machine shop mm-hmm. guy at church their brother so-and-so and so when they have a hard day at work they can I don't like to use compartmentalize but they can draw a line between their professional you know insecurities yeah. like my boss is mad at me or whatever mm-hmm. I, I did a I did a bad job my performance go on and on that is not tied to their Christianity. Sure, yes. Um, in ministry, that it, it is, though. It is in a very strange way. And so, let me take a drink. I think everything is kind of connected together, like like your your work life, your, your beliefs, or your convictions, or your faith. Uh, to me, that's like the worst job you can ever have. Being a minister? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hands down, hands down, the worst job you can ever have. Don't mean to crap on your Yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> I, dude, it's, yeah, it can get rough. But I think what's, what's crazy is if you have, if, if you have, as a minister, mm-hmm. if you have people around you that can do their best so that your, your, your environment as an employee is as healthy as possible. We're not talking about the gospel. We're just talking about like, hey, you get a paycheck and you have, you know, a retirement account. Like, it's a, if, if we're just talking about the job of ministry, let's make that as healthy as possible. And if it's not, well, then you're going to see you're going to see all that crap affect your faith. For sure. Yeah. And, and it might work if your faith is bad as a minister, it's going to affect the job of ministry too. That makes sense. But I think I look back on my dad, um, and I think there are times, and that you'd have to literally go case by case, every church in America, in the world too. But I feel like there's, there are some where the the job of ministry like hey dude this is how you pay your bills and how you feed your family like 
this job is um, requires you to to look a certain way, mm -hmm. to to put on a certain face or show or something. Like there's a certain polish you need to have, for sure. Or you're putting your job in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And you know, like that that might be the same way in in other jobs too. Mm -hmm. But it's just weird in ministry. So I think there were some times where my dad was just stressed out as a minister. And now, you know, we're, we're in the home and we see like, uh, you know, kind of this, like, this is, sorry, this is when I'm on the clock. And this is when I'm off the clock. Mm. And I think that's completely normal. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you had a job with a boss, but you had to be like on all the time and you could never come home and complain about your boss. Like it would get exhausting. And so I think, you know, when, and we weren't, we, we, I wasn't this, I wasn't this guy in my 20s that wanted to be a minister. Or maybe I did, but I, but God didn't give me that, thankfully. Yeah, yeah. But either way, like, I made it all the way through my 30s, and I was just, you know, a normal guy. And then I didn't go into the full-time ministry until I was 40 years old. Mm -hmm. And it was like, I was like Paul. I was like one abnormally born. Like, very few ministers go into the ministry at 40 at least in our fellowship. And so um, I just had a very different perspective of what this would look like as a job. And so my wife and I were just like, hey, we're gonna, we are going to try to do this in the healthiest way possible. And that means, you know, we're probably gonna say things that are not high on the list of things that ministers say, just to be real, sure. just to be honest. like. And I love the fact, so like, you know, we are all, we're all accountable as ministers in, in our fellowship. We're all accountable to someone. And, and I, I need someone who I can just call up and like vent to, mm -hmm. to be like, oh my gosh, like I hate this job. And they know I'm not, they're not going to try to like rebuke me or disciple me. They're just going to listen and be like, yeah, you know, it's okay. I feel like if you're enjoying being a pastor, you're not doing it well. <laughs> yeah oh my gosh dude have you have you listened to the rise and fall of mars hill no you were talking about it oh. not, no, yeah. yeah if yeah <laughs> woe to you when all small men speak well of you is the proverb like you have to be very careful if you're in ministry to be popular sure. and avoid all like um conflict because you can't get there, right? You can be a person that just kind of goes with the crowd and just preaches to a particular group and, you know, please them and make them feel all good about themselves. And it's definitely achievable. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that. well, that's what we, we're, we always try to talk about culture mm -hmm. and how if we... You know, like so. This is a, this is actually a theological debate. So, like, if if Jesus said, uh, "Go, 
make disciples of all nations. Paul, he preaches to the Jews, and then he's like, yeah, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Sure. Um, but what we see is, uh, especially like between him and Peter, like we see a church of different people, different cultures, mm-hmm. kind of smushed together, and it's it's not it's not easy. It's very hard, and so I think then that comes down to like, okay, so what is is the solution? Churches, faith communities that are homogenous mm-hmm. and different, or do we do the hard work of figuring out how to? smush people together mm-hmm. and uh, and so some ministers believe very different things and uh, I think it's important to do everything we can to try to have a church where people are different as different as you can be while still being under the lordship of Jesus mm-hmm. like hey is Jesus your lord and you understand what that means and you're not you're not just blowing smoke. Yes. Okay. But you're uh, you know, on the on the right politically and you have this belief and this belief and this belief and this. All right. You over there. Is Jesus Lord of your life and you're not blowing smoke, you know what that means? And they're like, Yes. And you're like, Okay, even though you're as opposite from this dude as you could possibly get. If we can find a way to be brothers and sisters under the lordship of Jesus, even while we're still different, um, then I, I think that that's what we need to do. Uh, so, but that doesn't mean that we aren't going to have like weird conversations. So I think church is a place where we can, we should be able to talk about political things or cultural things or you know, disciple one another on our on culture. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, this is your this is your culture. This is your upbringing. That doesn't necessarily mean it's exempt mm-hmm. from your repentance. And so, people gotta you know figure that stuff out and, and work it out. And so, I think there's things from wherever you're at in life or wherever you're at in the world. There's there's things that you're gonna have to surrender to make Jesus Lord of your life. And there's there's obvious things that you're going to see right away, and then there's less obvious things that you're going to you're going to learn over the course of your life and you and just because you became a Christian years ago doesn't mean that now when you learn oh man, this part of my life I never surrendered. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, it just means you surrender it. It all gets laid down at the altar. So I think uh, the, the, the flip side is what you were describing, though, where if I wanted to be super popular minister, mm-hmm. all I got to do is marketing. Yeah. I just got to find my market, mm-hmm. speak. my target market, and sell to them. And... Uh, and honestly, dude, there's some times where I'm like, that sounds so refreshing. <laughs> sure. 
or just get out of ministry. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it, and I think, so that's the way I read the dispute between Paul and Peter. Like, my, my interpretation of that is that Peter was like, it's just, it's just too hard trying to eat together with these two groups of people. Like, I still love you, but you eat your way over there. I'll eat my way over here with my people and you with your people. Mm-hmm. And Paul was like, Mm-mm, no, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. We're going to, we got to like get with this messiness of how we're going to figure this out. And, but I, but I see that, I see that in America, all over the world, but I'm here. So I'm, this is what I t- typically talk about is that you, the easier way is just to go to a church where pretty much everyone is the same Mm -hmm. and and the answer isn't diversity in quotes like diversity you mean different ethnicity usually when we say diversity we usually mean like a a one-sided diversity and in in america it's usually like black and white Mm -hmm. and if, if a church comes together and they have black people and white people, um, more often than not, and I'm not trying to say that like I have all the answers. I'm, I'm, I, I'm trying to be super humble here too. Yeah. More often than not, it's, as soon as, if, if, you're, if you're striving for diversity, like I want black people and white people in my church, there are homogenous ways to do that you just have to make sure that all the other cultures line up so like well if it's a young church that's easy we can have black people and white young liberal people that's easy Mm -hmm. uh we can have black and white old rich people that's easy we can have black and white conservative people that's easy. But man, when you're trying to not have like that two-dimensional diversity of just one culture. So race, ethnicity is a culture, but so is age, generational diversity, ideological diversity, like right, left, Republican, Democrat, where do you stand on these issues? That's, that's a type of diversity socioeconomic so are rich people and poor people and and what i'm what i'm putting forth is if you try to have and i know multicultural is kind of a trigger to some people but it's it's a very it works it's i mean it's the multicultural thing it's only places like for example the united states canada and a lot of the americas are the only particular places that do have issues with like you have to have a multicultural place because a melting pot you know in some places in Europe where like there's a lot of immigration there as well now there's there's a push for like okay now we have to blend everybody together you know start doing things together so like I grew up in India right mm-hmm. all of them are everyone's Indian brown. Brown people. <laughs> everywhere you go right and to me diversity, and they're all Hindu for the exactly. most part yep. so like the biggest converts from the church that I went to was Hindu Christian right mm-hmm. um and very, very and the ca- the Catholics, the Roman yeah. Catholics, yeah, 
and then very very few Muslims. If it's if somebody converted from Muslim to Christian, it was like a parade. Yeah, it was <laughs> like people the had reverse cookouts. jihad. <laughs> people had cookouts. People <laughs> like yeah. my dad would like announce this person's name in the and like promote him. Muhammad like, got baptized. Like, literally, that's literally yeah. what, obviously yeah. most M Muslim people. Like, yeah, <laughs> but like I remember my dad just like promoting him and just having him up on stage and yeah. kind of like a special treatment for him uh which is kind of cool i mean mm -hmm. whatever convicted him to move in that direction you know, god bless him for that uh, but i definitely want to get into a lot of the uh, uh the culture and all that stuff eventually i do still want to ask you a couple questions about like your your your, well, your parents and stuff so when you looked at your parents relationship with one another did your dad being a pastor put a lot of stress on their marriage Man, I don't know. My parents were, I look back at my parents' relationship and I'm like in awe of it, honestly. Mm. My parents, because they were, uh, there's only a couple times more where my dad was like an actual full-time pastor. Most of the time he had a job. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. And so like, I remember what I remember about my parents is their partnership and their teamwork and so for instance like my dad was in seminary in um cincinnati yeah we moved from indiana to cincinnati and they got a job at a christian bookstore berean christian bookstore and i hope i get the timeline right but my my, my dad got the job first through a connection he made back in Indiana and then got my mom a job. So they both worked at this bookstore making, I don't know, minimum wage back in the eighties. And then, uh, they, you know, one would get a promotion and then the other one, like the, I remember them doing this kind of like leapfrog up the ladder of life. My, mom is the one that actually got a job here in Michigan and that's what moved us up to Ann Arbor mm. and I was in high school and so yeah that was my second high school was in Ann Arbor mm. and then and then again they're like complimenting each other professionally and so then my dad gets a job and then one of them ends up getting a job offer at another company and then they like they're, they're just like to me they were just such a great team so your mom worked as well yep yeah. and um and then like in church they were always like a great to me they seemed like a great partnership they also did like extracurricular stuff side gig stuff that we grew up doing which was hilarious and like another... helping them and stuff with side gigs yeah, like, so we cleaned the bookstore. Yeah. And then they also did uh, a thing where they would do, like, performances. They yeah. were, like, in theater. <laughs> and so we grew up in this world of, of theater. And um, Is that why you're really good at, like, being on stage? I don't know. I don't know <laughs> at all. But I was in theater all through, like, high school and stuff. So, like, the, the public speaking side was never... I didn't never have that fear that I had to, like, overcome... So I do think that's a that's a component. And it's all natural. There, there was like nobody had to push you to be like, hey, don't be afraid. It was just all natural. 
uh, I think it was just, uh, just um, familiarity over time, like training. Yeah. So I was in a, you know, choir and church play, and then school plays, and then plays with my parents and um, different things. And so, like, I I was there was never a time where I got up in front of people and I was like terrified. And so, then I needed obviously you needed to work on skill of speaking but um but that's separate than getting over the fear mm -hmm. of being up in front of people but the um but my parents man i i look back on the way my parents uh raised us and their like the love that they had for each other and they were very real and they 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 had problems too like everybody but man they they just seemed to work together really well and I feel like they respected one another. Mm -hmm. Like, um, they they had affection for one another. Uh, we were a very affectionate family mm -hmm. growing up. Um, so I really, I really, uh, I, I I got nothing. I got nothing bad to say about my mom and dad in terms of like their marriage and um, and any of that. I really respect them for that. But isn't that like a, a crazy privilege to? have that you know because i feel like a lot of a lot of people that have gone into ministry uh, this is just from my experience just viewing um marriages it's it's almost like obviously it's a hard job so when you on the job and people don't necessarily like you or you know appreciate the things that you do you obviously bring that home mm. and then i mean if your spouse is not a, a you know an encouraging spouse he or she is going to look at you and be like yeah Hey, like, they don't like you. Are you a good pastor? Are you a good Christian? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. are you doing it right? And it, I just, when I hear, like, good, you know, pastor stories where, like, their marriage is intact and, and things are going great, it's it's almost a blessing because when you get kids involved, yeah. honestly. Dude, yeah. <laughs> I, like, that's another thing that Jen and I, when we went into ministry, yeah. we are like, we don't need, we're not some, like, broke college kid looking for a job like we're established professionals mm -hmm. i had my own studio she was a, an x-ray technician but our church needed a minister because mm -hmm. our church our minister left and we were like we just love these people so mm -hmm. we can step up and serve them and that's literally all it was meeting needs serving people considering people and the preaching was like secondary yeah. part of ministry and so it wasn't like a show, it wasn't a performance, it was meeting needs. And so that's what we, we did. But we, we, were, we were like, if we do this, uh, we, need, we need to try to do it in the healthiest way possible, including our marriage and our kids. And, you know, it's hard. Like, I'll, I'll admit to anyone it's hard. But it's, it's funny, we, we even ask our kids all the time now, like, because hey, they remember a life before ministry. They remember a life coming to me, coming with me to the studio. They remember a life where mom went off to work, um, and then dad went off to work, and, and they remember what it was like before ministry. Mm -hmm. And so now, we always ask them, like regularly, like, "Hey, boys, do do you like this life? Mm -hmm. This life of, you know." leading this church now we're leading this church like do you like this life of having people over 
all different times and hours and you know and and there are times where we thought for sure they were gonna say i hate this life that's such an unorthodox question to ask but it's like a game-changing question to ask because my parents can give a crap about what i <laughs> felt about it like i remember this one time we had to move from you've been to india obviously yeah. right so like I, we had to move from chennai to Coimbatore. Mm -hmm. This is in like right after I graduated from like, after I finished tenth grade. I that's like all... that's like L.A. to Michigan. Exactly, yeah. and I like I made all my friends. I was like, I'll you know, with the friends that I had around my neighborhood. I had friends from school. Everything was established. Like I was, I had a girl that I was seeing, but then my parents were like, oh, we have to go to this. My parents sat me down at the dining table, dining table, and just. They had, they had to focus on me because my brother was in college, so he was just going to stay there. Mm -hmm. right? My sister, she already moved to another city, so it was just me. And I my parents were like, hey, we have to move. And I was like, I literally just made friends. It was five years, six to seven years, actually, of staying in Chennai. Yeah. And I, that was the first time I made friends because from first to fifth grade, I changed five different schools. Mm -hmm. So every grade I changed, yeah, yeah. changed school. So it, it it was miserable. I told my parents I hated their job. I hated that the fact that they worked for it, quit your job. Like I, but it was not a question that they asked me. I just expressed the way. Like that was the first time I ever expressed my feelings to my parents without even them asking. Mm -hmm. You know, and it, it it just it just comes to a point where like, yeah, they have this idea of like, yeah, I'm serving God. Like, family just has to like you know take the brunt of it which it's it, it's it's hard to like yeah. juggle because <clears throat> yeah they obviously want to follow god they want to follow whatever you know they're that's put on their heart but mm -hmm. it's almost like everything else is kind of in the back burner you know yeah dude and i i i completely sympathize and i feel you i I look back now and if we had moved as much as we moved, if we had moved for one reason, be it the ministry or the military or anything, I probably would have grown to hate that thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I love the fact that that tumultuousness of our childhood wasn't attributable to any one thing. It was just life. It was just mm -hmm. all sorts of things. And now I actually respect my parents because they moved all the way across the country twice to take care of a, of a sick family mm -hmm. member. Once from uh, Kansas to Indiana and then once again from California back to Indiana. And now I like really respect my parents. But if that was, if we moved all those times for my dad being a minister, I'm sure, I'm sure that would have been rough. Like mm -hmm. I, I probably would have had a lot of feelings about that. But I think... Like for me, now, now that I'm older, now that I have kids, and I'm not, I'm not the same kid I was when I got baptized. Like the idea of go lay down everything for the Lord. Mm -hmm. Oh man, I gotta be careful how I say this. Why is that? <laughs> because I don't want to say something that sounds like super blasphemous. The idea of, like, go sacrifice everything for the Lord, mm -hmm. um, that can cross over and start to become go and sacrifice your, your marriage and your kids for other people. When it's, 
when it's the world, I'm sacrificing the world okay, okay, for God. Sure. Yeah. Well, that's a no-brainer. Yeah. Duh. Every every good Christian will say, "Yeah, I'll sacrifice the world for God." But if I say, "I want you to sacrifice your marriage, the mental health of your children, and your relationship with your kids, sacrifice that on the altar of Bob, this guy," you'd be like, "Well, screw Bob. I don't care about him. Mm -hmm. My my marriage and my kids are more important." Yeah. But in ministry, that's always the temptation. There's always that danger. There's a trap there. And that's like, you know, what's the old movie, The Bishop's Wife? Mm -hmm. Where she, you know, it's like, yeah, there's someone hurting that you need to go help. But if you always go help that person, that's hurting your family. And so I think the best, the, the best that we can do is just move forward and learn from our mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, but now the way that looks for me and my family is like, We'll get, we don't need to do this. We'll get out. I was going to say, like, you, even if you got out of ministry, you could still have a great career of photography or whatever you guys, you and your wife is also, you know, professional or whatever she's doing. It's like, you, like you said earlier, you don't need this in terms of a job. You're just yeah. doing this out of, like, a kindness of your heart or whatever, if God led you to do this or whatnot. But Yeah, and I think if, if that ever stops being the case... Mm -hmm. Then my example to my church goes down. Like, if, I, if it's almost like the Wizard of Oz, the guy behind the curtain. Like, you have no marketable skills. You're only preaching because you, if you don't do this, you can't. You know, you've got nothing else. Like, no can't function. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, and so, like, that's why I think it's important for ministers to always be thinking about what comes after ministry. Because, like, people that were in, like, the Apostles of Christ, mm -hmm. they all had a prior career, right? They're all fishermen, they're all tax collectors, one of them were tax collectors, other people were, like, a zealot, or whatever. Mm -hmm. They had a career before they they decided to go full-time, so even when they were, you know, preaching good and whatnot, they were still working part-time doing their job, right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely the... the we read about that with Paul. Like, mm -hmm. there's times where he was like, I'm not going to ask the church for anything. I'm going to support myself. Do some work, yeah. And I think that that's important. Like, you know, it's my conviction that even as a minister, that if I, like, I, I at, at this church and at my old church, I, I pulled, like, the, the working men. Like, hey, how much do you, do you mind telling me? Do you make more than this or less than this? Mm -hmm. Because I would, I'm like terrified of being the highest paid guy in the church. Like ministry is supposed to be a servant. Like I'm a servant of the church. And so like I, I there's no part of me that thinks I'm above you know picking up groceries, babysitting kids. Uh what other s silly stuff do I do? Like like just like helping people and I feel like the financial side of that, like I should make, I shouldn't, I should make it like the average yeah. of the men in the church. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a whole nother thing because I, I, I appreciate the way that our church's pay structure is, is where the, the wife is like a, an equal partner in ministry. Mm -hmm. So we, my wife and I, we each get paid the same and she works super hard and, uh, and we kind of, minister differently to the men and the women yeah. in that regard but like but I, I i've we talk about that all the time like 
we can we can go get jobs and we'll we'll be okay like even moving here so now we live in Grand Rapids we moved here and we're like can we envision a life here without ministry like if we move here and then step out of ministry now we got to go find jobs and are we going to stay in Grand Rapids are we going to move somewhere else and so that was all something we had to a co a account we had to cost a uh, cost we had to count um, before really taking this leap but I think when it comes like going back to the kids like I know ministers who personally like mentored me you know like lead evangelists of large medium to large churches who stopped ministry and like uh, now they're now they're not married anymore or they're you know they're not they don't even believe in God anymore and it's like okay well we have to learn from those mistakes but why do you think that is well, I think it's a lot of things but um, if you could narrow it down so here's a here's an analogy like in in um, like when you're when you're in your 20s and you're starting your career, mm -hmm. like you're learning how to be a professional. Mm -hmm. And it's something you don't have to think about as a kid. And, and what does it mean to be a professional? Your, your, your work ethic, you put your best foot forward, you wake up, you get ready, you go to work. Communication you, skills. You, you yeah. communicate, you deny yourself, mm -hmm. you know, you, if you have a bad day your boss doesn't care like brush it off there's like neuro pathways in your brain that are being formed about what it means to be a good employee and that is the part of you that makes money that's the part of you that provides for your family and so it's almost like a survival skill how do you do what you need to do to bring home the bacon to to provide for your family if that let's say you're 20 years old gosh i gotta be super careful let's say <laughs> well okay because i've already talked to people sure. about this but yeah. let's say you're 20 years old uh -huh. and you are a recent convert to uh -huh. christianity you just became a christian like two years ago sure at 18 when you first got to college and you are still at the most like foundational level learning how to live as a child of God sure. like what what like you're I'm, I mean I'm, I'm 20 years old what does Jesus is Lord mean like I think I know but I'm gonna be figuring this out for the rest of my life what does What's a service to the saints look like? Like, what is, what is considering others better than myself look like? What is humility? What is mutual submission? Like, all these things. You're trying to figure out life as a Christian. And now you're 20 and someone comes along and says, Hey, I want you to go into the ministry. And now, something very strange is happening in your head. Now, the, the part of you that is your relationship to God 
like if that's a gear that's turning that it's going to start meshing with the part of you that is like trying to figure out how to make money and the, the most dangerous thing that can happen is that your relationship with God is, is integrally connected to the way you make money. And that's the trap of young ministers. Is that like, man, I, my paycheck and my faith are so almost indistinguishable from each other. And so I, 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 that's why Jen and I talk about this is like, let's, let's just pretend and use our creativity and imagine a life with no ministry. Now we got to make some, can, can they, can they be unmeshed? Mm -hmm. Can my faith some, like last without the job part? And then there's the other side of it, which is like being part of a church. Like, so there's my relationship with God, there's my serving people. And in a, in a church family, like, I'm going to come early and greet people or set up chairs or pass plates or um, do a service project or um, whatever it is. It's, it's not you and God. Now it's in a faith community, you and other people. Well, that in a good-hearted Christian, that, that, those gears are not connected. You can make money, and if you have a bad day at work, it's not going to affect your faith. If, you're, if you have bad, if your faith starts to go down, it might hurt the way you serve people. But it's almost like a guilt, right? Like, you can't... So even if you're, like, being bad as... You don't feel confident about what you're doing as a Christian is correct, but you can still do really, really good at work, mm -hmm. right? But if if you're just having questions in your head about your convictions or your faith or whatever, it's it's inevitably going to be going to if you're honest and true to yourself, it's it's going to affect your job negatively, unless you just play a you know a perfect person type of like picture where you're like hey i'm just gonna do all these things preach talk about yeah, oh in ministry yeah in ministry oh yeah. heck yeah that's the problem that's what i'm saying is that in ministry those three gears are so interconnected mm -hmm. that when one locks up they can all lock up that's why it's the worst job ever <laughs> <laughs> that's why you that's why i i try to counsel mm -hmm. young people going into ministry like hey this is the way I think about this. And but it's, why do you think it's attractive, though? Like, why, why do people think it's such an attractive thing? Because our church promotes going on, like, being going on, like, a one-year challenge or, like, going into the ministry or... Uh, I know our church is kind of founded on the Matthew 28 type of, like, mentality, but... Yeah, I think... Do they not know what's coming their way? What, like, what... There's a... Uh, I don't know. There's a lot of reasons. But my, my feeling is that young people are very pure-hearted. Sure. They want to help. Mm -hmm. If that help also comes in the form of a job, the, the way we process that is that, oh, I can, if I get paid to help people, I can help more people. Yeah. There's logic there. It's not evil. Mm -hmm. But we just need to do, like, the the elders need to do our best to counsel and train warrior. I mean, think about that. Like, do you remember the NBA players 
Like back in the 80s and 90s, these young kids were getting drafted out of high school to go into the NBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember the year that that, ha- that happened, but it was, it was like, and they were blowing tons of money and getting in lots of trouble. Mm-hmm. And like, and so then they started bringing in older NBA players and like sit you down. All right, you just got drafted. This is your first year in the NBA. Your first check is about to show up. Here's all the things you're going to want to do with it. Don't. Learn from us. Learn from the wisdom of your elders, guys who've been there, and and we can help you. Um, and it and that mentorship, just from like, not basketball. They weren't helping them with their layups. They were helping them with the job mm-hmm. of NBA. And I think in the same way, like, people can come in fired up for Jesus. They still need mentorship in like the perspective and the, of the job of ministry. Mm. And, like, how can we help people process these things? And so, like, in ministry, those gears, like, if I'm having a bad day in my faith, I don't have the option of, like, being a jerk to people in the fellowship. Mm. Like, a normal brother, he's, like, struggling with something, and he's, like, not, you know, returning calls or whatever. Um, We can be like, hey... You know, just be patient, give him some time, he's struggling, or he's going through a little faith crisis, or whatever we call it. The minister doesn't get that. Like, <laughs> we still need, yeah. we still need to, like, do the job of meeting needs and serving people and whatever it is, setting up the church. What, yeah. Like, we still need to do that, even if our faith is low. Mm-hmm. And so that's where these, like, gears that are turning in our heart... We need to just always have an eye on them because eventually if we don't and they start to get really kinked up, something bad could happen where someone has a faith crisis and then immediately they're like, I got to quit my job and run away with this girl I met or whatever. Like, and I've seen but, people in the ministry do that. But can they, like my question is, can they stay in ministry if they're struggling with their faith? Um, isn't that a crazy question to even I, like? I, I want to say they, yes, they sh- they, should. they should, right? Yeah, they should, they should show people what it looks like to struggle. struggle. Yeah. And I mean that gets back to the whole thing. Like, why is struggle a bad word? <laughs> like, struggle is what we should be doing, mm-hmm. which is just so. Replace whenever you feel like using the word struggle, replace that with fighting for your faith. In which case, it's like, hey, is that person fighting for their faith? Yes. Well, then that's great. <laughs> it's the, you know, and then it comes to the point of like, well, they're not fighting for their faith. They've stopped struggling. Okay. Well, then that's, that's when it's dangerous. That's when it's scary. But I think if a minister is having a faith crisis, this goes back to the support system. Like, they, they like, you know, they should have people that they can talk to. And so, for instance, in every faith tradition, faith community, fellowship, denomination, every everybody's different. But like in our little neck of the wor- wor- neck of the woods, like I get on a call every Tuesday morning with 12 other small church leaders from around the Midwest. Sure. And we talk through um, lots of stuff, just like 
good news, bad news, like I got stuff on my heart, I need help, um, sermon, we listen to each other's sermons and offer critiques and feedback, we, all, all kinds of stuff, but like the community of people who can handle, so if, if I had a faith crisis where I'm like, I don't know if Jesus is real, um, I would hope that I have people who have been there that can help me through it. And I hope I have people here that I could be honest with. Because even there's a great book called A Dangerous Calling about how crappy ministry is. Yep. And one of the things they talk about is like if a minister comes into a church and they're only seen as a leader, it's a disaster. They need to be seen as a brother or sister and that needs just as much help as anybody else in the church. And so, like, that's even when we were coming here. I'm like, if I'm coming here as just a leader, I do not want this job. Like, I'm coming here as just, just a sinful, messy guy as everyone else. Um, and so, you know, that leads to the question of like, well then, what is a minister then? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, I, I, I never want anyone to think that I'm like on some, you know, revered status. So why do you think it came to that mindset? Like, is that something because you saw it in maybe your parents or like your dad or like in terms of them in the leading churches and you just saw that for yourself and you were like, hey, I don't want that kind of prestige or status. I just want to be somebody that can be friends. Because from my perspective, like you're probably the only person that I see that is genuinely, um, genuinely want to be friends and, and you just want to help somebody you just want to like get to know somebody's brain rather than enforcing a certain type of agenda on you. And I, 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 I honestly, I appreciate that a lot. And I feel like I've been, I've, I've not been the best at like, I mean, we obviously have our differences. We think differently and we have different perspectives on things, but I just came to the realization that like, there was no reason for me to not communicate, not have a, strong relationship with somebody just because they think differently than me maybe i saw that in you because like you were a pastor or whatever and mm. you were saying something and then then that necessarily didn't feel good in my heart mm. and i was like even though maybe i might be right or you might be right i still should be able to communicate with you i still should have a relationship with you and i feel like a long format type of conversation mm -hmm. could help us you know see eye to eye or just talk about the issues that you were going through or I'm going through. Because the experience makes difference of opinion, for sure. Yeah. Right? And I just want to apologize. I was like, I feel like I'm, I'm a terrible friend to you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not trying to, like, blow smoke up your whatever. But <laughs> I, I honestly feel like I haven't, I haven't encouraged you in any form of way, even though you've done a lot for not just me, but for everybody in the church. And maybe sometimes that might backfire because like, oh, he's just a normal guy, you know? And he's like, not this glamorous pastor where you have to like, you know, put 
like go at your feet <laughs> and I'll make you look all good. Yeah. You know? I mean, sometimes that comes comes with perks, right? If you if you're at like a higher status, if you carry yourself in a higher status, people will naturally want to like, hey, follow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I yeah, no, that. no, man, I love you, dude, and I think the um the this is this is the part of being in a church where it's just building relationships over time. Yeah. Like, I remember, so here's a funny story. Yeah. My very first Sunday here, mm. I wasn't even preaching. Like, I just did the communion message. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, uh, Some Mark Tang guy. No, 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 no. Oh, gosh, now I'm going to forget who it was. Uh, I'll remember. Either way, someone... Uh, I think it was... Uh, uh... What's his uh, Faulkner guy? No, no, it? it's the guy I thought from Minneapolis, the Sri Lankan dude. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah his... Was he from Minneapolis or Chicago? Milwaukee? I can't remember. I know, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. either way, yeah. <laughs> he he might listen to this and be totally offended that we can't remember his name. <laughs> but he's like, but he was preaching, yeah. and I'm like, it's my first Sunday here, mm-hmm. and I knew that we were gonna come here. Everybody knew that we were gonna come here. There was a transition and things were not super awesome sure. and a brother comes up to me in the fellowship break and his first words well he said hi but like his first words were like what what gives you the right <laughs> and he he kind of like yelled at me yeah and i didn't i didn't have an, a clue what to say <laughs> I didn't have a clue. I'm like, bro, I don't even know you. Yeah. And you don't know me. And I mean, the question was like, what gives you the right to replace somebody that was already there, right? Like, yeah. yeah. And I, and I, it wasn't me. Yeah. Like, but we did have a transition of leadership, and and so, but he wanted to know like the rules. But he wasn't like kind of. Did he just kind of like? I love this guy now. Sure. We're friends, yeah, and like yeah, he's great. Yeah, yeah. But like. Um, but he wanted to know process, procedure, uh-huh. rules. And I was like, well, until, this is all I could say. I literally was stumbling. But I was like, well, bro, until until you and I have a relationship, like, I don't even know what how good yeah. that conversation is, mm-hmm. is going to be. So maybe you and I could just, like, learn to get to know each other mm-hmm. and he's great we're red friends and i love him mm-hmm. and he's great and i'll bend over backwards and and serve him in any way possible there's no weirdness between us but this gets back to that like in the absence of a relationship we that's what rules are for like in a in a family there's actually very few rules there, are, there might be some like, this is how we do things in this family. Mm-hmm. But we're willing to let those things go for the relationship. And, um, you know, I don't know if you remember the... I, I, I did this lesson on the four R's of, like, for me, I don't mean... I don't want to be one I of those I definitely remember the four R's, but I don't remember what they <laughs> So the four R's. So this is just me. And I try not to impose this on people, okay? N- n- top level... Is royalty and yeah. that's my my lordship of Jesus uh-huh. so I he is a king I'm a slave he's master I'm a servant like everything is under that royalty 
The next one is relationships. To me, the, the next level of trying to figure out how we do life as Christians on this planet are royalty, lordship of Jesus, and then relationships, which is the family of believers, brothers and sisters. I consider you more important than myself. I sacrifice for you. We preserve the relationship. And then below that is rules. And rules is not rules like, like written down rules. It's like just how we decide we're going to do this. So like in a church, in a church setting, a classic example of this is like, what time does church start? That's mm-hmm. it's not in the Bible. Doesn't matter. But we as a we as a group say, hey, we're gonna start at this time. And uh that's that's just what we do. But if someone's late, and this is one of if you've ever I, I encourage everyone to read Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, because I talk about this rules versus relationships thing. If someone's late, like, well, tardiness is not a sin in the Bible. Sure. And so am I going to sacrifice the relationship and yell at this brother because he broke our rule, in quotes? Like, we set this as the time. And if you don't come at 10 a.m. on a Sunday, you're in sin. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm telling him that that rule is more important than our relationship. True. And so I make it my goal, and my wife too, and we, we make it our goal. Whenever those two things bump into each other, we are going to sacrifice the rule to preserve the relationship. The relationship. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean that there's sometimes where we have to sacrifice the relationship to preserve royalty. But is it really sacrificing if you're just kind of like helping your friend be, do the right thing? Um, Potential, right? How do you mean? Like, what do you mean? Like, if I were to, like, call you, I'd be like, hey, you should come, you should wear a suit and tie when you preach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, if that was the right thing to do, I would I would just say it because I care, you know? But if it's, like, that would be kind of, like, sacrificing the relationship, but at the same time, like, it has potential to uh, for that relationship to go mm-hmm. away, but it's almost like I care about you enough to just say it because I'm your friend. Yeah, but that's a great example because preserving the relationship is having the conversation yeah yeah. and so it's like you know if we're talking about an issue like well i'm i want i want to have the i want to talk sure because that's the relationship Mm -hmm. and so i'm all for like if someone has an idea like let's talk let, let me let's hear it um but then you know we have to figure out how what we actually end up moving forward in so either way so it's royalty relationships rules and then the last one and this is the this is the tricky one remember this is what i this is how i view the world this isn't what i force on everyone else so it's remember it's rights oh oh yeah so royalty my lordship of jesus relationships i consider others more important than myself i I preserve the relationship rules we as a society as a culture as a church as a family we're gonna do things this way and then the last thing is my like entitlements my rights my this is what i deserve this is what you owe me that sort of stuff and so like classic example is freedom of speech if i were to walk into uh if I were to walk into a restaurant with my 
wife and kids. Let's say just me and my wife, we're out on a date. There's two guys and they are like foul mouthed, like just cussing up a storm. Mm -hmm. There's part of us that would be like, you know, they can say whatever they want. Like, let's say that they start directing their attention at my wife. Sure. Let's say it's you Mm -hmm. and you're out with your wife and your daughter and these two guys are like purposefully trying to say the most offensive mm-hmm. things to you. And maybe they just want to pick a fight. Um, if I were to go up and say, hey guys, do you mind not talking that way around my wife and kids? Am I asking, am I, am I saying that I don't think that they should have the First Amendment right to free speech? Yeah. No. I'm saying you should be allowed to say whatever you want. But I'm, I'm, I'm appealing to the rule that we have in society where you don't talk that way in front of women and children. Do you think is that that's, is that why they put the Second Amendment right after the First Amendment? <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> but the idea is like, hey, I want you. I I believe. Yeah. I believe in rights. I'm a very like libertarian guy. Like, yeah. I don't think that laws are the best way to enforce morality and all sure. of that. We can. Yeah. That's a whole other conversation. But like, the if I go up to the guys. I'm not saying that they don't deserve to have rights. I'm asking them to sacrifice that right at that time because of a rule we have in our society, which is you don't talk that way around women and children. And they can tell me to like get lost, in which case I can choose to leave the restaurant. But, but it's the idea that, like, okay, rights are important, but they're not as important as either following the social contract that we have decided as either society as a whole or in our church. And so for instance, um, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stay on like the freedom of speech. Like in church, are people allowed to say whatever they want? Um, when you come into church, do you do you have no rights? I don't think so. You you can, but that doesn't mean that you should, and that doesn't mean that you don't willingly sacrifice those things. Oh, here's another great example. I love beer. I love drinking beer. But if I were to have a teen event at my house, mm-hmm. I have the right to enjoy a beer. But if I have a bunch of kids over at my house, I'm not going to exercise that right. Even if I common sense over rights. In and I would want parents to know, hey, Ben has a rule. Mm -hmm. We're not gonna adults aren't gonna drink alcohol at teen events. Mm -hmm. If we we have someone we're having a cookout and it's a church sponsored children's event. And one of the teen helpers comes and brings a six pack of beer. I'm gonna be like, "Hey, bro, let's not do that. Yeah. This is this is like a children's event. Mm-hmm. Like, we're not gonna be drinking beer at this." Better get rusted too. <laughs> <laughs> Delinquency of a minor. <laughs> but it's like, am I saying that he doesn't have the right? No, I'm just saying I want you to 
set that right aside for the case. And this is what we see Paul doing over and over. Paul had all of these rights that he could, as a, as a Roman citizen, he could have exerted his rights, and yet time and time again, he put his rights aside to uphold what they were trying to do in church and uphold the relationship. And so the four R's is the way that like I view, like, okay, when these two things are going to bump into each other, which one am I going to put underneath the other? Which one am I going to sacrifice so that the other will be preserved? And so for me, that's the way it goes. And so I always think about that. Like, man, if we're having a bump in church, I sat, I sat down with a brother and we talked about this because there was an issue. Mm-hmm. And his, his issue was that there was a certain rule. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know what, bro? I, I want you to know that I value our relationship mm-hmm. above this rule. Yep. And so I'm going to appeal to you on the basis of that relationship and not sacrifice our relationship for the rule. And um, uh, and I hope, I hope he felt like I've, I genuinely cared about, about him and about our relationship. But I think uh, there's times in our culture where we do the exact opposite where we will like where we will put our rights and this doesn't matter i've seen this on the right and on the left sure. where like you know stand with a raised fist and be like this is my right i'm going to die on this hill even if that means that you and me you're dead to me because my rights are more important than this relationship and I'm like yep I'm not gonna argue with that and say they can't do that I'm just gonna say if we can't do that and and live like Jesus like that's not the way the church is gonna it's like show the kingdom of God the best that's not living out like the Sermon on the Mount and so again like I'm, I'm very. People should be allowed to do what they want. But for me as a Christian, I'm always going to balance that with, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give up, the right to do what I want, or I'm gonna give up this rule. The 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 hilarious example of the rules versus relationships that I always saw, was like if you ever have a church sports league, mm-hmm. church softball, church volleyball, man, oh my gosh, dude. We will fight a brother or sister over, like, was that ball safe or out? Mm-hmm. And it's like we're following the rules of this game so much that I will, like, end our relationship. But do you think it's just, like, not, there's no consistency of, like, competitive nature within the church? I mean, if you played volleyball every weekend, then, you know, you could still complement that with your relationship with that person you know and things would be great but like mm-hmm. if you do it once a year oh that it, it comes out <laughs> that competitive nature comes out like if you say i you know if i did something a foul or whatever like what are you talking about foul like, yep. you know what I mean? so i mean I, the I, stakes I, I, are higher yeah yep. yeah yep. yeah and that's where it's like man when i so like i learned this from my old minister tom who was like so so athletic so competitive 
And yet, in his brain, he had he had been, gotten really good at flipping that switch, where he's like, well, "This is churchly, so I don't care about this. Mm -hmm. I want this to be edifying. I want it to be like building people up. I want it to be encouraging, and I don't care if I lose." Mm -hmm. But he was like super competitive, and when people saw him, they were like, "I don't want to be on. I don't want to play against him because he's cutthroat." Yeah. And like, yeah, I mean, if you guys are just if you're just playing spades at you know, at the Super Bowl party, like he can trash talk, and he has this i this this um, appearance of being super competitive, mm -hmm. but as a Christian, he had learned like, oh, I'll throw all that out the window, if it means building relationships with people, and so I really appreciated that mm -hmm. from him, and I think I remember seeing, and this is where culture comes in too, because. I would like, love to get into that. Do you want to okay. pee? No, I'm good. Okay, I got to pee, so I'll okay. be right back. <laughs> so, like, <clears throat> the rules versus relationships? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you add that mm -hmm. into cultural differences, mm -hmm. you can get, like, a powder keg. So, for instance, church softball. Yeah. I'll never forget this. But in Detroit, we had a, you know, we have, like, a pretty geographically mm -hmm. spread out church. There's a lot of white suburbans. Mm -hmm and black families from Detroit mm -hmm. itself. So there's this brother who's a black guy from Detroit and he's pitching and he loves to like ham it up and trash talk. So he would pitch the ball and then yell at you as the ball is coming yeah, at yeah, you. Yeah. And then you've got this white middle-class suburban brother who's like an engineer or scientist and he's like very rules yes <laughs> and he's like he, and he plays softball every weekend sure. like to him like the, the the rules are plain like let's play softball and this other brother's like i'm having fun what's the matter yeah um and so there's tension there and it's not only rules versus relationships it's like cultural, urban, suburban, black, white, all of this. And what inevitably happens is someone is going to throw down this card, which is like, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and act like that. Sure. And, uh, and that's, that's very... The temptation is always going to be there along one of those cultural lines to say, well, my side of this line is the right side and that's the side that Jesus is on and you're on the other side, which means you're on the other, you're on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And man, we have to be super careful. And I'm not saying that there's not like right and wrong, it's dark and light, like that's true, but we have to be careful that we're not assuming that the way we do things is the right way and that Jesus has like picked your side. Mm. And so we'll see this with um, this little stuff like trash talking softball player all the way up to, you know, voting. I don't see how. You'll hear people on both sides say, well, I don't know how you can call yourself a Christian and vote different than me, is what they're saying. Um, 
And I've talked to Democrat disciples, Republican disciples who have both struggled with that. And, and often my answer is not to, to say, yeah, you're right, they're wrong, or to say, yeah, yeah they're right, you're wrong. My answer is always, um, you really need to build a relationship with that person. And I've had that conversation where it's like, I've had people, I'll leave names and political affiliations sure. out. I've had people say, well, I don't know how you could vote, fill in the blank, and call yourself a Christian. And my, my, my question then is, how many people that vote that way do you know and are friends with? And shockingly, the answer is usually very, very low. Mm -hmm. They might have like, you know, their token Democrat or liberal or Republican friend, but like, like, man, the, for me, cause this is a whole nother conversation, but it's like, I grew up very, I grew up very conservative. And I, I, I saw the world that way. And that like, in here in America, well, one, America is more closer to what God wants in every other country. And then Republican is more closer to God wants than Democrat. That's just the way that I was kind of wired early on. And yet, what, what started to change my mind was not debating. What started to change my mind was not people proving me wrong. Like no one owned me in a in a debate sure. or shut me down. Yep. Whatever the YouTube thumbnails like to say. Um, destroyed. What, yeah, destroyed. <laughs> utterly destroyed. Ripped off. Yeah. Um, what what got me to really like you know it's easy to think. As a conservative, it's easy to think, oh, you can't, you can't be a Democrat and call yourself a Christian until you meet a great Christian guy that also votes Democrat. And you're like, huh, well, now what do I do with this piece of information? And it's relational. It's not, it's not, it's not even like we're, we're setting up factual arguments. It's purely... I, I know this person. I trust their lordship of Jesus. And yet they also vote differently than me. But don't you think it just it's supposed to come naturally uh, when you do become a Christian? Because like it requires you to deny yourself, right? And when people call self, it's actually your ego, right? And not a lot of a lot of people, at least in the Christian sphere, talks about ego and denying your ego or eliminating mm -hmm. your ego. Um, but <clears throat> people think that they can still have an ego and still be a Christian, which I think it's it, it's not possible because if you if you're denying yourself, mm -hmm. that's the only way you can follow Christ. Because like then again, we talk about the whole concept of master and slave, yeah, right. So, and I also think like I also think the culture is also a part of the world. So, right, you gotta be in the world, but not of it. Yeah. So, I, from my perspective, 
looking at the American culture and how it's divided by like, like race or uh, political affiliation. My question to you is like, do you think it's because people haven't denied culture that they cannot be united in some form or way? Because like, they all they believe in the same God. Because like, if you believe, if you're believing in Christ and if you believe like there's an afterlife heaven, like that should be more important than your your affiliation with your politics, right? Mm -hmm. Like, why is this trumping that? Yeah, you know what I mean. And no, I agree. So, do you think it has to do with people not denying their culture? Totally. I mean, I think. Like, that's why teaching culture from a very foundational faith belief is super important. Because, like, Jesus was always telling people, like, hey, the way that you inherently, naturally think about these things is going to have to change. And so, like, for instance, like, you know, and I, you and I have talked about like the conserv like individual versus collectivist type yep. thing, like, like the, um, like the way Jesus redefined family. Mm -hmm. Now, was he gonna like? We know that Jesus wanted you to love your mom and love your parents and like love your brothers and sisters, but then he says crazy things like you have to hate your mother and brother and sister and mm -hmm. even your own life. Or his his mom and brothers and sisters come to get him, and he's like, "Who are who are my mother and brothers and sisters? These guys." It's like revolutionary, and what it seems to do is is like moving the needle away from collectivism towards individualism. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think what he was doing was redefining two very important things about family in first century. Israel, like, your family meant <clears throat> your identity and your inheritance. And what Jesus was saying is, now you're going to get those things from something else. I'm going to give you a new identity and a new inheritance. And it's not going to come from your dad anymore or your mom. And so what's great about the kingdom of God is that it... it it uncoupled your identity and your inheritance from your biological family and it made it spiritual but i think what what we as society has done is pushed that like oh jesus was against the old understanding of family and we moved it super individualistically where now like it's super weird you talk about culture like we're all influenced by a culture, and yet we process that very individualistically. And so now we think that our culture is us as an individual, but we don't see that, that it was like a collectivist environment we were brought up in. Mm -hmm. And I think I would, I would um, highly recommend two books to anybody. Um, they're both by the same guy, Sebastian Younger is his name, J-U-N-G-E-R. I think that's right. I hope I'm not messing that up. Sebastian Younger, he wrote two books. Well, he wrote more than that, but the two books I really appreciate are Tribe and Freedom. Mm -hmm. And in, I think it's in Tribe, he talks about, uh, he talks about America. He, he pulls a lot of stories from like Native Americans, mm -hmm. which is pretty cool. But, 
he talks about like modern day America, American politics. And he says something that's super profound at the very end. He says that there's the problem with this left right divide in America is that they're both right. And he goes on to explain what he means. The old, the ancient, you know, millennia of understood um, understanding of, of what a tribe is. There's two fundamental components. One is, uh, there's no freeloaders in the tribe. Sure. Everybody has to carry their weight. And if someone is trying to like do less on the back of the work of others, in some tribes, that person is executed. Mm -hmm. And in our society, the right side of the political spectrum has, has said, yes, we believe that. And lifted that up as a virtue. No freeloading. But in a tribe, there's another component, which is uh, the injured, the unlucky, the destitute. Like, those people are going to be taken care of also. And in our society, the left has taken that and held that up as a virtue. And so what we have is these two virtues that have been ripped apart from the, from the ancient understanding of like a, a tribe. And what I mean by tribe is someone who is not my family, I'm gonna treat them like my family. Sure. And so, and that's what, that's what Christianity is supposed to be. Mm. You're not my family, but I'm gonna treat you like my family. And so this is not a religious book. And you gotta watch, there's plenty of F-bombs dropped in this book. Like there's. It's a, it's a great secular book about this idea. Mm. The first one is tribe, then I think he follows it up with freedom. But he does a great job of saying, like, here are these ancient truths, not based on the Bible, just based on these civilizations and these societies and these peoples. And look what we've done to that. We've, like, ripped it apart and divided. And so he ends with talking about, like, if there was a terrorist organization that wanted to destroy America, honestly, the best thing it could do is leave us alone. Mm -hmm. Because the way we came together after 9-11 was so unifying. Mm -hmm. The way we come together in times of war is so unifying. Disaster is good for us. Comfort is what's bad for us. When we're, when we're, when we're at times of peace, that's when we destroy ourselves. <laughs> and it's a beautiful book. Oh my gosh, I love this book. But it's the idea of like now we are those are considered our cultures, and so we're gonna we're gonna like we're, we're, I don't think we're ever gonna get back to that like mix mm. of them. Mm. Part of it is modern, yep. a modern age. Um, part of it is media. Uh, there's lots of I think there's lots of, of influences, but I think um, what you were saying about like. Is it, is it not denying culture? Mm -hmm. Definitely. I think there are people that need to... We, there's this buzzword now, deconstruction, like mm -hmm. deconstructing our faith. Mm -hmm. But I think while we are constructing our faith is when we need to deconstruct our culture. Yep. Be like, man, as I'm building my faith, I need to really take time and pull apart like a, like a messy, wet ball of yarn. I need to like 
carefully start to unthread these, these things that make up who I am and start to like really figure it out. Because, oh man, maybe, maybe I think this way because of either this environment I was raised in or this, this is the, the news I grew up watching or this is the, um, the friends I had or this is what, any, anything, like anything about our culture. We do need to deconstruct that mm. while we're constructing our faith. But the problem with American Christianity which we did and we exported all around the world. The problem is that we never, we said, well, you can just add faith to whatever your culture is, meaning American culture. And so you've got like, you know, urban African-American culture. Just add Jesus to that. And you've got white rural culture out here just add Jesus and we never um, we never thought there might be a problem with that yep and so I recently figured out that that was kind of like the problem when I came to this country I was like 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 you said urban African American culture and rural African I mean white culture they both believe in Jesus but they're so different in the way they think right mm -hmm. And and obviously the what we can look at is the the difference in culture, and even the idea of like individualism in America that's a culture in itself. Oh, totally. Right. But yeah. then there is the the real collectivism, and there's the real individualism. Right. So Christ, even like, even Christ was talking to um, the the Jews, and he was you know he was talk he was deconstructing the collectivist mindset in in uh, in Israel. Uh, while he was while he was doing his work, I believe that he wanted people to steer into an individual, the, the real individualistic mindset, not based on a country or nationality, but to steer into an individualistic mindset so that you can be the real collectivist mm. people, one in spirit, right? Because I don't know what Bible verse that is. It says one one baptism, one spirit, whatever. Yep. Like, but you have to have your own individual relationship with God, your own individual convictions. I, and I think if that's something that people so, solely focused on, of, of being an individual in Christ, that like, you you. There is no way of not being able to relate with somebody else that is, that has that same mentality as well. So, mm -hmm. it's. It's in, it's inevitable if you if you're doing individualism right that you will be a part of a, collect, a a greater collectivist culture that's, real individuals as well. So what you're talking about, and I'm gonna try to crystallize it sure what you're talking about is is transcendence like even in the bible we we see like there's earthly wisdom and then there's heavenly wisdom mm -hmm. there's things from below there's things from above and so if we're enmeshed in our in our human cultures there's there's individualism down here which is like you know, what I would say is everything wrong with, like, American culture. And I love America. I know people think I, I hate America. I love America. But, like, the, everything wrong with the American culture. Like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, just put your nose to the grindstone. And, you know, you can, you're a self-made man. Mm -hmm. And I don't, 
I think what you'll find is that usually, most of the time that's not actually true, but that's just a myth that we have like told ourselves. It's this like earthly individualism. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to figure it all out myself. There's earthly collectivism, which is like everything wrong with what you've seen in yeah. India. So I'm from America. You're from India. I was born in earthly <laughs> individualism. Mm -hmm. You were born in earthly collectivism. Yep. And you, we see the faults of both mm -hmm. of those. And now I can go to India and have this romanticized. This is every white person yep. that goes yep. to yep. India. Yep. And they get a little bindi on their forehead <laughs> and they wear saris and they're like, oh, India is so amazing. Like, I love India. But but it's easy to fall in love with that mm -hmm. and and not see the reality. Yep. And it's easy for an Indian to come to America and be like, oh, it's the land of opportunity. It's so mm -hmm. amazing. And not see the reality. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about, which is good, is there's there's a level above it. Yep. And so if if we can learn to connect with a transcendent, individualism meaning a deep profound relationship with god mm -hmm. and a transcendent collectivism which mm -hmm. is a love for the children of god yep. i think that's like you're you're solving world hunger at that point like you, if if that's possible that's like fixing the planet uh but the problem is we're, we're just so down here. But how do we get there, though? I think, I mean, teaching is one thing, but modeling it. Like, this is why the number one tool that, uh, my gosh, hold on. The number one tool of early Christians mm -hmm. was... Uh, I can edit that out if you have to keep that call. No, no, it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Uh, one of the most profound tools was just the testimony of, of a transformed life. Like, hey, this is, this is who I used to be. And thanks to Jesus, this is who I am now. And when we see, like, that I used to be this way, and now I am this way, you know what? Can we do this? Yeah, yeah, Hold on, this is so weird. Hey, dude. Hello? <laughs> Are you there? Yeah, I don't know. That's super strange. He's probably gonna keep calling back. Either way, the, um, the, it wasn't, it wasn't about, like, debating and proving people wrong mm -hmm. and you know one of the things i always say is that like the gospel is history not philosophy sure like the early disciples it was literally just like oh my gosh did you hear what happened and they're like what and like jesus and they tell about jesus and it was like current events and it was this is the guy this is the guy the messiah and this is him and and then he died and he rose from the dead and I saw him. I'm like, wait, you saw him? It's like, And then as time went on, and I know theologically some people would disagree, but that as time between the, the people who saw Jesus goes on, 
And then you start to get the miraculous gifts mm -hmm. of people who are like, the Holy Spirit has given me power to prove to you that this is true. And it's through a demonstration. It's not through necessarily uh, a, a finely crafted logical argument. Yeah. And so this idea of demonstrating and uh, testifying, testimony, and the, the power of a transformed life versus right and wrong, like doctrinally, or not, I'm gonna sh I'm gonna shut you down. I'm gonna like tell you how wrong you are. Yeah. And so I think, man, if if we as Christians can understand that, and this goes back to the whole part of like, you know, when people when people just add Jesus to whatever culture they have what you start to find is there's a lot less actual transformation going on. It's just, it's just like, I was good. I was raised good my whole life, but now I have, but now, you know, whatever. Now I have, I'm good with Jesus. Mm. Um, this is why I think, you know, we could talk about parenting and yeah. our kids and stuff, yeah, yeah, but yeah. like, this is why I think it's important that, we as people mm. are very in touch with who we are without Jesus. Mm. My fear is that there's a lot of people that don't really, they're not scared of their life without Jesus. Yep. You know, like, I mean, I was fine before Jesus, but now I have Jesus, so that's good. That's my like ticket to heaven, and it's not, I wasn't actually saved from anything because I was fine. Um, you know, like, like the empty way of life handed down by our fathers. Like that's, to some people, salvation is not just when I die, now I don't go to hell. It's like I was saved from this empty way of life. But if you live in a good Christian culture where like, there's people who were like, well, I've been saved my whole life. I was saved since I was born because I was raised in this good Christian family. Mm. And it's like, oh, you're, you're missing a part of the gospel message that I think Jesus wanted, which is like, an, I'm in touch with my sinfulness. And so, but if we can demonstrate, like, this is who I was. I didn't save myself. I didn't fix myself. Jesus did. The Spirit is what is trans the transformative power in me. And now, through my life, I can demonstrate what that looks like. That's what's going to be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Uh, or, or I hope, that's my hope. My, my, my hope is that we could, we could actually help people yeah. and not just get into like doctrinal arguments with people. Sure. Do you, uh, do you have any kind of existential angsts or do you have any existential questions that you have just living your life as a human being? Uh... So that's funny. I I don't really here's here's the way I'm gonna answer that. I, I have a I have a long list of questions that I can't wait to ask God when I see him. Things that I don't understand about the world. And I, I feel like this is the trap of ministers is that we have to have all the answers. And I try to be very honest with people and be like, I don't know. Well, are you allowed to have questions? Totally. I have tons of questions. Like what? Like everything, like, 
everything that doesn't make sense to me. Like, hey, God, when a starving child in Africa dies, never heard the gospel, are you cool with him, or do you, th you throw him down into the lake of fire? Mm -hmm. And, you know, my hope is that, like, every child on the planet that's starved to death goes to heaven. Like, well, isn't that the, isn't that like justified in the in scriptures already? Yeah, but I mean, it's not, it's not like clearly laid out. Look, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Uh, yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. But like anything from like, but all the way down to like, you know, creation. Like, how did it actually work? How how did how did how did this go? Like, I'm, I don't necessarily bother myself with trying to figure everything out here. But are you... I just add it to the list of questions I want to ask God. But do you think he's already laid out explanations for that that we just have no access to? Mm, I don't... I, that's not how I read the Bible. I don't read the Bible as like some hidden wealth of every single answer in the world. But it's not necessarily in the Bible, though. That's, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, we have this one document that allows us to see the story of Jesus and the whole religion of the Jews, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um... But like, you know, like science or whatever, like, can, like God, has God given us the tools to uh, discover him in these ways? Or? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sure. Also the answers to like, to correlate, I guess like belief in a spirituality with its cosmology or with uh, materialism or matter or whatever. Do you believe that there's answers to that that's actually written that the Christians just kind of like, we just want to answer. We just I'll just ask God when I get there, rather than like because like I feel like those things do help you in the physical in the physical moment, like in mm -hmm. the actual moment that we just kind of put away because it's like not part of the Bible. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it would have to be like case by case. I think I think the Bible is the most amazing document ever written, and I, sure. I I love it, and I feel like there's so much more to uncover, but you're always gonna you have to balance that. Because you're always going to run the risk of falling into a trap of, like, hidden knowledge, like national treasure. <laughs> like, there's, like, some secret code. If you line it up just right, you're going to find this. Like, there was a book. I only know about this because my parents worked at the Christian bookstore. Yeah, yeah. There were all these guys that were like, I found a secret code in the Bible. And... What is that? What is that um, terminology there's, called when you can like when there's similarities in Old Testament, New Testament, and they like? Oh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, but it. But I, I. So do I look at the Bible as like this like super divine and mysterious thing that will you can read your whole life and still find new things? Like yes, but is it this crackerjack? Like secret code? No, like, we have to be super careful. There's a there's an author, a Jewish rabbi that I love, mm -hmm. um, but he has there's some like Orthodox Jew Jewish perspective that's it's almost borderline numerology, where it's like yeah. there's a number that associates with every letter, and then we can do because that's the Hebrew language, right? That's the, the yep. Hebrew alphabet, which everything has. Because isn't that so important when you're reading? like Hebrew literature because everything has a symbol and an alphabet and a letter as well. Yeah. I just, some people will go like the next step and start drawing conclusions 
that I'm like, oh, like I don't see that in the text, but I see it in the gymnastics that you're performing with the with these letters. And so that's where I'm like, all right, I'll read your book. Like I read his book, mm-hmm. but I'm not gonna like, I'm not gonna lean my entire faith on the weight of his conclusions. Sure. Right. And that's where I think, even as Christians, sometimes we can read a spiritual book and think, well, if I read this book, I have to believe everything it says. Mm. And I think a more scholarly approach is you read the book and you say, oh, thank you for your opinion, mm-hmm. Mr. Author, Researcher, Scholar. Uh, and then you read other books that disagree with that. That's why I love something like um, like, uh, like, like the survey of the Old Testament where they, they'll spend an entire chapter on did Moses write the Torah and here's and they'll they'll do this it's crazy here's 10 different opinions Mm -hmm. and they'll go into great detail about every single one sure here's all 10 opinions here's why this person thinks it's this here's why person this person thinks it's this and then here's what you know we think but only after they've given you all the other opinions Mm -hmm. and that's more like scholarly research type stuff so I think students of the Bible so I took I did a like a, a ministry training thing yeah. back in Detroit where that was the stuff and I was like, oh, there's something actually really refreshing about reading opposing views like this and then someone, the author is like, this is what, after looking at all those, this is what I think. And I had a, when I taught at the college, I had a student who, uh, his wife was actually a, a, a Jewish biblical scholar sure. and so he would come and he, he'd be like because i was already in ministry but i was mm-hmm. teaching this is so weird but i was teaching photography at a community mm-hmm. college and he would be like you're the bible guy and my wife is a bible girl and i'm going to tell you like and so he'd be like what do you think about ezra and nehemiah actually being the same book like ezra and nehemiah is one book that's what my wife is writing her doctoral thesis on or whatever and I'm like, oh, that sounds fascinating. I love to read her doctoral thesis. I've heard that. And I think it's a lot of, it's very, it's a, there's a lot of credibility to that. Um, but then there's, then there's the next step of like, well, what do we do with that information? So for instance, what's a good example? This conversation is going all over the board, mm-hmm. man. I'm sorry. But the, here's a good example. Uh, some textual criticism of the Bible would say something like maybe Jonah isn't a real person or Job isn't a real person. Like it might be a story and, and I'm fine with that. It doesn't affect my faith. As long as the message kind of reaches your heart and makes a difference, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I still do believe that the book of Jonah has really great, uh, divinely inspired lessons (laughs) about the way I look at the world Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff. But, but does that is that lesson uh, lessened? Is that lesson lessened by if I if I learn that Jonah was written uh, much much later, mm-hmm. or or Daniel is another is another great example. Like if Daniel wasn't an actual historical person, but maybe was written much closer to Jesus' time. And maybe it was written as almost like a, uh, I don't want to say the word novel, because novel means 
fake, like fiction, fiction yeah. but like it, it might be written to support the argument of Jesus. No, it, it might be written as Jewish literature, mm. and then Jesus comes on the scene and is quoting it left and right. Like that's cool to me, yeah. and it doesn't. It doesn't. If you say, "Well, Daniel isn't a real person," it's not. My faith isn't resting on that. That one aspect of it, I still will quote Daniel. I still read Daniel. I still love Daniel. But, but there are things like, if, uh, like like Genesis, like, is is was Genesis quoted? You know, was Genesis quoted as like this is how I made the world? Or was Genesis did Genesis have a different intent as it was given to these freed slaves trying to relearn who they are and who the world is and who God is? And so I love imagining different scenarios that the Bible might be written. It doesn't it doesn't affect my faith at all. Um but then when we start to like draw, so like, oh, classic example, Revelation. A lot of, when, when I read Revelation, I read Revelation as, uh, well, we don't really have apocalyptic literature anymore, but like I, I read it as a, uh, a beautiful, like almost poem that was written to, and I try to imagine a guy in the first century who's, whose wife was like dragged out of their house and murdered. His kids were fed to lions. And now he, maybe he was only saved because of his job in the, in the government. Or, I, try to, I try to get really specific and just make something up. Like I try to put myself in this world. And now he's, he's like, this is not worth it. Mm. I'm done. Like, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. But this life, as a Christian, is just too hard. I'm done. And then... Uh, let's say Luke brings him a letter and he's like hey I want I want you to read you this letter it's actually like a poem John sent it out he's like John wrote a poem and he's like actually no Jesus wrote a poem and this is important and so like the book of Revelation to me People get all kinds of stuff out of the book of Revelation, but I put myself in that guy's shoes. Like, first century Christian, family was brutally murdered because I'm a Christian, and I want to give up. Any lesson that I pull out of Revelation that doesn't make sense to that guy, I'm like, why, why would I care about this book? If you're talking about some future war that's going to happen in 2,000 years. Like, I'm giving up on my faith now. And someone brings me a letter and it's like, hey, it's okay, hang on, because 2,000 years from now, Saddam Hussein is the Antichrist. And back in the 90s, that's what people thought. They, they literally interpreted Revelation through the lens of the Gulf War. Yeah. And we keep doing that all the time, and we never get, say hey, well, what if it was just meant to encourage the disciples who were at the time when it was written? And so I literally had this conversation with another minister, 
because they go to a church that preaches Revelation very literally about the, the end times. And I was like, I was like, well, I guess I interpret it as most of that stuff probably already happened. And it was future to them, but now it's past to us. And he's like, oh, yeah, I know that that theology, that doctrine, but we, we, we don't agree with that. I'm like, okay, that's fine. And we, we don't have to fight each other, but, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like, okay, so if someone were to say the revelation is written about COVID, and because it is, we need to go uh, assassinate the president. I'd be like, oh, well, see, you took a leap there. And now you are applying the scriptures in a way that I have problems with. And so what, whatever it is, the way we interpret the, the Bible, like that next leap from... You know, what, what is the hermeneutics? Like, what is the, how we're actually going to apply this in our lives? Um, I, I want that to be consistent with the person of Jesus. And I, I want to make sure that I'm not using the scriptures to do something that's wildly unchristlike. Mm-hmm. So, I, I totally uh, agree with what you're saying. Um, in terms of, like, reading the Bible, right? There are two ways of approaching it. One is like esoteric, one's exoteric. Like so a lot of people that are part of the like Roman Catholic or um, I would say a lot of anything kind of you know has a lineage from that has has this mode of viewing the scriptures and church as an exoteric thing where they read the Bible as. They read it as a historical document. Yes, it is a historical document, but it's more of like, yeah, that just happened then, mm-hmm. rather than saying, how does that apply to my life internally right mm-hmm. now? Like applying the story within yourself rather than saying, hey, what can I learn from that? You know, Because if you say, what can I learn from that? It may not always apply it, but if you put that within yourself, then it everything in the scripture, in, in the Bible makes sense if you look at it from an esoteric point of view. But like I said, even the book of Revelations, right? A lot of all, a lot of those wars, if you really look at it from a point of view where your eyes is on yourself, then you can all <laughs> you can always like you can always make sense of it because it's happening. Your eyes are on yourself. Right? Mm-hmm. Your eyes are constantly on yourself. Even all the parables in in um, in the in the New Testament or in the Gospels, like rather than saying, "Hey, that's what a story Jesus said." If you can apply that to your own self esoterically, then th- th- there's nothing to lose, right? You can all, as much as like I believe that the Bible, like lit- in literature form, has been manipulated, changed, and then whatever, right? I still like the, the the essence and the truth within the scriptures has esoteric meaning if you read it and understand it that way. Because if people are looking at it from like if you read it like a newspaper. You can be deceived left, right, left, right, and center because like people have been manipulating and people have been changing the text consistently since what three twenty five AD the uh, what is that the Nicene uh, Council? Like people have been doing that since then as well. But like if you if you read it from a point of view where like you can gain understanding about Christ through that, like that be, let that be the only way because from what I think, Bible is probably like five percent of Christianity. Mm. That's just my perspective. Like, you can learn so much, but like everything you learn through your prayer, through your own relationship with God, through understanding what 
how Christ is affecting you, it, it that that helps me look at the Bible in a in a better way. You know, rather than just looking at the Bible and trying to like make sense of it, it's like your my relationship with Christ is so well that like the Bible makes sense. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think so. I I do agree. I feel like we we've gotten away from like the practice of Christian mysticism. And I, I, I like the idea that there's, there's mystery. There's, there's things that we can't, we can't understand and that there's ways of worship that are, are, um, that we've lost, lost track of. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what I love about the Bible is that it's a uh, it's like a standard that we can go back to cross-reference. So, for instance, if you when you live long enough, you hear dozens and hundreds of ministers say really horrible things, and they they all say that God told them to do that, and um, or the Holy Spirit. And there have been so many abuses of power, mm -hmm. and uh, like even down to like sexual molestation. Mm -hmm. And so, what I love about what I love about the relationship with God is that it is within. And yet, what I love about his ability to communicate is that he continually shows us something that is outside of us that we can kind of use almost as a reference. Sure. And so here, here's what I mean. If, if someone were to come to me and say, hey, God told me to move to another city and take this job, I'd be like, hmm, okay. I can't really argue with that. But if you said, hey, God told me to, like, you know, beat my kids, I'd be like, oh, well, I have a problem with that. And, and I'm not basing it on the law, but I could. I'm not basing it on general, like, commonly accepted ethics or morality. I'm basing it on the scriptures and saying that you're, you're coming to me with a message from the Holy Spirit that, that violates what I see in the Bible, which I also believe is a message from the Holy Spirit. And so, is there latitude I'll, I'll say, yeah, there's latitude to what God can be doing in people. But what I don't want is for someone to, to weaponize God and the Holy Spirit as a way that violates the scriptures to abuse other people or whatever, to get rich on the backs of a poor congregation or, you know, on and on and on. And so when I, when I think about the Bible, there's a couple stories that I go back to. 
where I'm just I'm just amazed at God's ability and the way that he communicates with people. And so the first one is Moses. Like Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, he gets these tablets. God, sometimes I imagine them that he like laser micro inscribed them. Like no human hand could have chiseled these letters this small in the stone. It's, and I'm like, man, that would be so amazing to watch. And so we, he brings them down the mountain. This is the law. And he walks down and what does he see? He sees all of Israel worshiping the golden calf. And so he smashes them on the ground and he freaks out and he grinds up the golden calf, casts it, casts the gold across the water, makes people drink it, like hates, like he's, he's like, these people are awful. And, and yet he smashed the tablets. So why, where, what happened? Well, if you keep reading, God's like, hey, remember those tablets you smashed? Well, you have to replace them. So he made them get two new tablets and climb back up the mountain. And God, and God literally says in, in Exodus, like, to replace the ones you smashed. And so God saw, he, he gave, he communicated. Men messed it up. And he was like, I'm not going to let you mess it up. And he communicated again. The same thing happens in Jeremiah. When Jeremiah writes everything down, he takes it, and the king cuts it off, throws it in the fire. Cuts it off, throws it in the fire. Reads the whole thing, cuts it off, throws it in the fire. And Jeremiah goes, and he's like, I hate my life. This is stupid. And God says, hey, so you're going to have to write all that stuff down again. And again, it's I, I love those two stories because it's like God communicates. Man tries to screw it up. God's like, I'm not going to let you screw it up. And so that's one of the reasons, like, I understand a lot of the criticism of, like, translations and stuff, but there's part of me that in my faith in God, I do put a lot of weight on his ability to communicate. And do I think that, um, do I think that uh, there's more to the Christian life than just the Bible? Yeah. Yes. But do you think it was meant, do you think the Bible was meant to be compiled like that and handed to each and every, every single uh, person that was part of the Roman Empire and then sort of trans, transitioned all around Europe and then all around the world? Mm, man, the history of how the Bible was canonized is really interesting. Yeah. And even that does require some faith. Like, I will totally admit, like, the fact that what we read as the Bible, n no one in the Bible had that. And so, but I see the way in the New Testament, the Old Testament scriptures were so cherished, so quoted, so well-preserved. Um... Like, if I'm reading the New Testament and they talk about the scriptures and they mean the Old Testament, and you can, and 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 I think the 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 scholar, uh, the scholarly opinions are, are pretty solid on the, that. That we what we read in the Old Testament in our English Bible is is pretty darn close. Like we can go to out extra Christian sources 
have nothing to do with Christianity and see the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And then the New Testament, one of the things that I think is amazing is that, is that like this kind of came up with the Dead Sea Scrolls, is that we're, we're looking at documents, original documents that are uh, very, very old. And so there's a good chance, like think about this, there's a really good chance that when Matthew wrote his gospel, that the, the first copy, the original copy of Matthew could have, could have lasted over 400 years mm-hmm. because it was, th- those mediums were designed to last hundreds of years. And so there's a good chance that like the original copies of these gospels lasted well into like when Christianity was being spun up into the national religion. And so like when you go and tour the Holy Land, they'll show you this is Peter's mother-in-law's house. And you're like, really? This is like a gift shop. Yeah. Like all that stuff. <laughs> and, I, and I totally get that. But when you start to think like, man, by the time these locations were designated as like national historical landmarks by the Roman, you know, empire, like there were still, even though it was several hundred years later, there are still um, very good chances that like all the original gospels were still floating around Mm -hmm. and being copied. And so I, I am totally okay. This is, this is the tension that I live in. Okay. I'm totally okay questioning like the archaeology and the canonization of the text while at the same time putting a ton of faith in God's ability to communicate to us. Oh for sure. Yeah. And so if if it came if it came out like I don't know, like here's a book in the Bible and it's not real. Well that well that's happened. Like you read you read some depending on your like digital translation You'll come across a large passage, like the end of Mark, and different chapters, like different sections of, uh, I think Matthew and Luke, or like, it's all italicized, and it's like, yeah, we don't think this was actually in the Bible, and it's because over time, like older, like they found earlier and earlier copies of the text that don't have that in it, and so, to some people, even maybe to some baby Christians, they're like. Well, then everything is a lie, and to me, that doesn't that doesn't hurt my faith. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh well, I'm glad that we're doing the work of of finding. But like, why, like, why, why do they, why are they in a position where they have to feel that way? What do you mean, like, like the the, the immature baby? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's because you know someone said something. <laughs> someone said something like, oh yeah. Uh, we believe in the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible, <laughs> and it's it's this idea of we need we need to teach that faith is not just um, here's what I believe, and I'm always right. We need to teach that faith is 
hey, over the years, you might learn that you're wrong and your, your lordship of Jesus is never going to waver. That's faith. If faith is only an unwavering belief that you're right, oh my gosh, you're going to fall into so many traps of pride and superiority over other people. And you're going you're gonna to stop being a learner. You're going to stop um, being in awe of the way that God reveals himself. And I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, ongoing revelation or prophecy or anything. I'm just like, man, we, we're, we're going to always be discovering who God is. And our faith is the thing that says, that's always right. Whoever God is, that's always right. And I'm committed, unwaveringly, I'm committed to being under the lordship of Jesus, even if I find out I'm wrong on something. And I'm okay with that. And that's a totally definition, totally different definition of faith than I think the modern evangelical Christianity is. Mm. It's like, faith is knowing that you're right and never doubting it. It's knowing that you're right. But there is a definition that says, like, faith is believing something that is unseen. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah. But again, that gets back to, like, that gets back to, there's a lot of things that... Uh, like I love going through the Gospels and and reading stories of Jesus interacting with people, and Jesus says that's faith. And I have to go, huh? Because I when I read that story, I see humility, or I see audacity, or I see, and I try to put a label. Like what is it? How would I characterize this? But Jesus called it faith. Like, huh? I have to. I have to let that sit with me and and stew on that for a while. Because so what I'm getting at is that the, the word faith has a much more robust definition than just believing in something I don't see. But I, isn't isn't faith something that believing like not believing, but like comprehending something that you have seen? Like but isn't when you understand Christ for yourself and you believe that he is your Lord and Savior, not just because somebody told you to say it. Then you see it for yourself, and that's faith, mm -hmm. right? And but a lot of people believe that, like, oh, I'm just gonna believe that somebody told me about Christ, so I'm just gonna believe it, and then just act on what the Bible says, follow the rules, and maybe that will be counted as faith. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I I I just think that's a dangerous trap because. The whole John three sixteen thing, which is, as much as it has brought a lot of people to keep Christ, it it's almost like if you believe in me, you will have eternal life. But like the believe aspect, I just feel that it is so simplified because of the English language. That I agree. Yeah. That belief probably has decades of living to understand what belief is. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, but yeah. yeah, hey, I would love to do a part two. Yeah, let's do it, this, man. So. I do have to get going. <laughs> but but uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. We can definitely do it another time.